Today's episode of Transform Your Workplace is brought to you by Zenium HR. Learn about Zenium's complete HR plus payroll solution at zeniumhr.com. Today's episode is also brought to you by swag.com. You can learn about swag.com about halfway through the episode, and we've got a special offer for you. Today's guest is DDS Dobson-Smith. I really enjoyed my conversation with DDS. We talked about DDS's book, You Can Be Yourself Here, Your Pocket Guide to Creating Inclusive Workplaces by Using the Psychology of Belonging. And as the subtitle of the book suggests, we talk about what employers can do to create a sense of belonging, create psychological safety, and to make sure that we have an inclusive environment in our workplaces. There's a lot of great takeaways from this conversation I had with DDS. I know you're going to enjoy it. I put links to DDS's website, book, and other resources in the show notes. So make sure to go follow DDS on all the social media platforms. And make sure to follow me. I'm on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. I love connecting with listeners there. Hope you enjoy today's episode. I know I did. Have a great week and we'll talk to you next Tuesday. DDS, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for inviting me, Brandon. High school. So that's this awkward period of our lives where we're trying to fit in. We're all going through different changes at different points. And you make a comparison to high school and the workplace. How did those two compare? Uh, Wow, you got deep into it straight away, Brandon. (laughs) (laughs) I told you, I told you. Okay. Um... Yeah, I mean, high school, whenever I'm working with groups or individuals, particularly when I start to talk about the topic of inclusive workplaces, I often ask people to raise their hands if they survived high school. And, you know, it usually raises a little bit of a giggle because of the word survived. But it's a very, very deliberate choice of words because it is a time of our lives that is, I think, a tumultuous gauntlet of ups and downs. Um, As you said, physically, our bodies are changing. You know, mentally and emotionally, we have one foot in adulthood and one foot in childhood. And we're trying it desperately to differentiate from our parents while also desperately trying to be included and fit in and find our people. And I think the world of work is very, very similar to that. And, you know, I think when you look at high school, there are teachers and there are, you know, there is the administration, which is very similar to departments and boards of directors There are people in high school, there are cliques and factions. And in the world of work, there are teams and departments and there are people that you lunch with and people that you don't lunch with. And so I also think that when it comes to work, because of this, you know, like it or not, we live in a capitalist economy and capitalism tells us that it is good to produce and consume, produce and consume, produce and consume, and to climb the ladder. And success is about title and money and scope of accountability and all of that sort of stuff. And and this economy can hoodwink us into 
thinking that 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 is what success really is. And so oftentimes we are, we find ourselves in that space of bending ourselves out of shape in order to fit in, in order to be deemed acceptable by the people that are going to bestow upon us promotions or exciting projects to work on or a desk by a window or whatever it is. And so in that process of wanting to fit in and bending ourselves out of shape, we end up, you know, covering, code switching, becoming someone who we're not in order to fit in, which is exactly like it is at high school. I mean, I can remember as an over uh, an overweight, whatever overweight means, but you know, a chubby queer teen, I tried to fit in with the boys, I tried to fit in with the girls, I tried to fit in with the geeky kids, I tried to fit in with the sporty kids, which definitely didn't work. I mean, I, I even tried to fit in with the teachers. It was just a desperate time of wanting to belong. And the same thing happens at work. Yeah, it's been a while since I've been in a high school. I, and I hope things have changed. Uh, I'm 36. So it's been over 18 years since I've been in high school. And I hope people don't actively suppress who they are just to fit in. I remember in high school, I mean, that long ago, people definitely were suppressing who they were just so they can fit in with mm -hmm. whatever they wanted to be around and just to feel a sense of belonging. And I know this happens in the workplace all the time. What kind of damage does this do when people suppress who they are? Whenever I'm working one-on-one -on -one with some of my executive coaching clients, my ears are always attuned to quite a common experience when people talk about there is a work me and there is a not work me. And the reason why I'm attuned to that is because from a kind of psychological problem, a psychological perspective, I think there's a problem waiting to happen with that splitting. When we reserve aspects of who we are for different contexts, rather than being able to bring all of us all parts of us together and to, I guess, to live fully as ourselves in, in the here and now. And I think it's problematic at an individual level because it takes an inordinate amount of psychic energy to be able to be someone in one context and be a different person in another context. And just whether we're doing it consciously or unconsciously, the amount of energy that that takes to maintain that is vast. When I think about the world of work, when we work in a company or in a climate, and I use the word climate versus culture quite deliberately, but when we work in a climate where we don't believe that all of us is acceptable and that all of us will be welcomed and therefore we are required to cover code switch suppress aspects of our life our personality our behavior then it also has an impact on workplace performance because that energy that we're using to be someone that we're not in order to be deemed acceptable by the others who have the say over whether we're included or not that energy if we weren't using it to code switch to cover to suppress then it would be available and it would be available for innovation. It would be available for our performance. It would be available for relationships. It would be available for our customers and our clients. And, and I think having it available is the key to what I think of as success. For leaders who might be listening and thinking like, oh, what's the business case for creating a sense of belonging in the workplace? This is exactly what you just said. It's you could be 50% productive and then 50% worrying about 
trying to fit in and just like worrying constantly about who you are and not being able to bring your whole self to work or unlock the whole hundred percent and be really productive. Like that's the business case. Exactly. Like I know from my own experience that I have had to ask myself, how much of my queerness can I let, what kind of queer can I be in this meeting? I know that for black, brown and indigenous people, they will ask themselves, what kind of black person am I allowed to be? And for parents, whether they allow themselves to talk about their children or whether it's okay for them to leave at 5 p.m. because they've got to go and pick the kids up from school. Like all of these things that we think are unallowable in the workplace. And by the way, for the leaders that are listening in, when it comes to inclusion, it is leadership behavior that will make or break the extent to which people experience inclusion in the workplace. So yeah, the business case to me is is very clear. Right, absolutely. So to create a sense of belonging in the workplace, a couple of things need to be present. What are those things? Right. So in order to have belonging, the experience of belonging, you have to have the behavior of inclusion. And in order to have the behavior of inclusion, you have to have the fact of diversity. So I talk about the idea that diversity and representation is a fact. You either have a diverse workplace or you do not. And the way to test that is when you look around, do you see people who are like you? Yes. Do you see people who are not like you? Yes. If you can answer yes to both of those questions, it's likely that you can also say that there is a diverse representative workforce. Once you've got diversity, in order to be able to really optimize on that diversity, the organization has to behave in an inclusive way. And when I talk about organizational behavior, I don't just mean the way in which human beings act, react, and interact with each other. I also mean the organizational policies, practices, processes. Are they supporting inclusion or not? And once you've got diversity and you have inclusion, then the chances are you will be able to have this experience of belonging where people feel psychologically safe enough to show up as themselves. It seems to me that, I don't know, over if I look back like 10 years ago, it didn't seem that people were talking about belonging and inclusion as much as they are now. And I don't know if that's just people are starving for belonging at work. If it was always there and it was just they couldn't speak up or they didn't feel psychologically safe give me a little history lesson. Where are we at? Where have we come from and where are we at now? Yeah, I mean, I I think you're right, Brandon. I, I don't think it has been spoken about, but I don't think that's because the need wasn't there. So I am never going to be one of those people that throws existential rocks at the different generational needs. <laughs> you know, yeah. I am I yeah. am 48. I am I am a true Gen Xer. I'm married to a borderline Gen Y, Gen X person. And I know that there is something very, very important about the shifts and changes that come along with different needs of different generations. It's it's how we get change. I think today, because of the way in which many people have grown up um, and the experiences that other generations outside of my generation and your generation have had, then different things become important. And we've only got to look at the last couple years, actually. I mean, we don't even have to look generationally. We can look at what's happened in the world, particularly in America, over the last two to six years to realize that 
or, or to see where this groundswell, this upswell of needs has come from. I look at the workplace today and I see that what is becoming increasingly important to people is that their work brings them meaning and purpose and the place that they do it enables this experience of belonging for them. And it's not new, right? Like the idea of, and I talk in the book a little bit about attachment theory, which was a a groundbreaking, paradigm-shifting piece of research or body of work. I can't even call it a piece of research. It's such a vast body of work that identifies and shows that the need to belong and have nurturing relationships in which you can feel securely attached transcends generations, geographies, biographies, or biologies, I should say, and is a basic human imperative. And I think it's been the last couple of years where we've seen so much tragedy, uprising, social uprising in the world where I think workplaces have had to respond to this basic human need. Yeah. I think a lot of us as individuals, I mean, we we need belonging. We desire it. We could bring our whole selves to work. And when that happens, think about how the teams interact and work together. I It unlocks something different because as we know, like teams, when we're all working harmoniously and together and we have diversity and inclusion, imagine what teams can accomplish because they're they're more powerful than the individual i think the the data shows that so when it comes to teams you know what does belonging unlock when it comes to people and and i think let's be clear let's let's differentiate between a group and a team right because not every group of people is a team deserves the honor of being called a team um and a, a and a team is a group of people that are bound together by a common purpose and that are able to, you know, that are focused and committed to shared results and shared success. And so when there is the experience, so a a prerequisite to the experience of belonging in a team is the idea of psychological safety. And psychological safety occurs it's a it's an internal experience that occurs for us when we know that it's not expensive to be ourselves and with psychological safety people are enabled to say things like i'm sorry i got it wrong i made a mistake and also they are enabled to be able to say things like i have an idea or i think we could do this better or differently now imagine the opposite of that when it comes to teams When people aren't able to say, I'm sorry, I made a mistake, I got it wrong. Or when people aren't able to say, I have an idea, or I think there's a better way that we can do this. It's obvious, right? It's obvious what is, you know, would you prefer to work in a team? I imagine that the growth, their growth is stagnated. They're, they're probably less creative. They're, they're, they're probably not saying as much as they normally would. I mean, how bloody boring is it going to be? Oh, boring. Oh, it's interesting because you you had a, a nice data point in, in the book. This You said in 2016, Google's Project Aristotle proved that IQ and resources can't even compensate for the absence of psychological safety. There you go. Like, how surprising? <laughs> not, not surprising at all. It's like, oh, yeah, thanks, Captain Obvious. But, yeah. it, but it sounds like, you know, Project Aristotle was an incredibly important piece of work that demonstrated that which we all knew intuitively. Simple as that. 
It can be so stressful to choose the perfect swag to order for your company, especially when you're trying to find items that people actually want to keep. That's why I'm thrilled to tell you about swag.com. Swag.com makes picking out corporate gifts simple and fun. In fact, they sent me a swag box and it had custom socks, custom water bottle, and a few other items. And I was blown away at the quality of the packaging and the items. Swag.com makes it their business to offer a wide range of products so there's something for everyone. They carry premium brands like the North Face, Camelback, Ray-Ban, and more. All customizable with your company's logo or artwork. And you can even create a custom swag box like I just mentioned, full of great branded items, all delivered in a unique box designed for your company. What I love about the swag boxes is that you can ship it directly to an employee's home. And with swag.com, you can easily set up a corporate gifting program for your team with no platform fees. Their team of expert curators are standing by to help you design the perfect gifts for your team. Go to swag.com today for the perfect swag and custom gifts for your company. And right now for Transform Your Workplace listeners, I have a special offer to help get you started. Get 10% off your order when you go to swag.com slash TYW and enter the promo code TYW10. Remember, for 10% off your order, go to swag.com slash TYW and use the promo code TYW10 when you check out. Now back to the show. So for, for most organizations, what's missing when it comes to having belonging in the workplace? It seems like probably many employers, many workplaces are, are close to achieving it. Maybe they got one part of the equation. Maybe they are diverse, but don't have the inclusion. But if you look at a, a workplace holistically, what, what's typically missing? I think there's a couple of things that I always look to. The first one is whether, well, first of all, I, I encourage organizations to slow down and understand the difference between diversity, equity, and inclusion, because often those things are all said in the same sentence. So the first place that I think people or organizations trip up or miss the point is when, when they think about diversity as being a, a checkbox activity that they have to do or that they need to do. And oftentimes, the reason why it is a checkbox or an activity that they think they have to do is, is through a lack of knowledge, awareness and understanding of what having a diverse and representative workforce can do. Fast forward then to this topic of equity, and I cringe when I hear organizations talk about these topics in the form of, you know, well, we don't see gender, we don't You're see right. color, color, we yeah, don't color see sexuality. Color. I understand that there's a positive intent behind that, but those phrases completely invisibilize the experience that people who are black, brown, or indigenous, or who are female, or who come from the LGBTQ community, or who are disabled, oftentimes, not in fact oftentimes, every time, have to work harder and more flexibly and with more resilience than people who have identity markers from the majority favored group, so the historically included group, which is if you have an identity marker that is white, straight, cisgender, male, able-bodied, then you are known to be favored automatically. You get an automatic leg up in life based on the social conditioning um, and the dominant narrative. And so thinking about equity rather than equality is really, really important. Because when you think 
equitably, you recognize that for certain people with certain identity markers, that the cards are stacked against them. So equitable thinking and equitable action stacks those cards differently. And so it's important to think about that. And then when it comes to inclusion, I I have seen some really great organizations have fantastic policies that support inclusion, whether it's parental leave policies that recognize non-traditional families, that recognize or or companies that that provide men with the same quote-unquote maternity benefits as they do to women and non-binary people, whether it's companies that have policies that support the social and medical transition of trans people at work and so on. Companies can have all of those things in place, these beautiful, inclusive policies and practices. And none of that will matter if the people in positions of power don't behave in an inclusive way. It's really, sometimes it is the very, very tiny gestures. And I'll give a, you know, just speaking quite vulnerably about a, a whoopsie, a mistake I nearly made uh, a couple years ago. It was back in the day when we used to have in-person um, <laughs> workshops. And those I was, were the days. <laughs> those were the days. I was working with, um, with a group of executives in San Francisco and we were in a moment of our kind of day together where we two groups were up at the flip charts and they were brainstorming and I took a pen over to one group and I almost I caught myself before doing it but I was about to hand the pen to the only female in the group and in the last moment I directed my behavior and handed the pen to the most senior man in the group and said how about you take the notes And that's not unusual. I I have a a female, well, a very senior female client, executive coaching client that I work with, who was telling me the other day that she was on an email chain about like a meeting that was being organized. She was the only female name on the chain. Oh, well, the only name that you would imagine is female. And everybody else had a traditionally male name on there. And there was an assumption made that this woman who's a chief marketing officer, by the way, was an executive assistant. And people started asking her about getting teas and coffees organized and travel plans. And that was simply because of her name. So these biases exist. And so if as leaders, if as people in positions of power, we don't recognize those biases and take mitigating action, then all of the diversity and inclusive policies and practices we have will go out the window. Throughout your book, you have, I think you did interviews with employees, probably all different levels. And there's some like stories along the way about like their opportunity for belonging in the workplace and what they desire. And I pulled a quote from somebody, I cannot remember the person's name, but it says, own your stuff and know your blind spots. And if you can't do that, hire someone who can help, end quote. And I think that just aligns perfectly with what you just said. It's so often we're so set in our ways, especially as leaders. We, we, maybe we've been in an organization for a long time or we've been doing things a certain way for so long and things are changing and we're not changing with the times. And we often don't even recognize our own blind spots because we have these biases that we've had forever. What do you recommend for people who just can't even see their blind spots. I mean, I'm guilty of this all the time. I mean, they're called blind spots for a reason. For a reason, yeah. Right? And that it's unconscious bias because it's unconscious. So it is hard to spot. And at the back of my book, I list out podcasts, 
um, Instagram accounts. Page 155 of your book. Thank you, Brandon. That can help with raising your awareness. And this might sound basic, but this, again, was life-changing for me. And I would encourage everyone listening to do the same thing is take a look at your Instagram feed if you use Instagram or your TikTok feed and take a look at the people that you follow. And are they just like you? And if they are, I would encourage you to change that so that at least 50% of your Instagram feed and the people that you follow, your TikTok follow, the people that you follow on TikTok or Instagram are different to you. And actually, even further, I would say, and that challenge your worldview, that make you feel uncomfortable by what they're saying, because that is a really, really great way to shift your perspectives that you didn't even know need shifting. You know, the amount of time that we spend doom scrolling, like, you know, I don't know, there, there are times when I might be sitting at home watching Survivor with my husband, we love Survivor, and there's a particularly tense moment. I'm like, I pick up my phone and I start scrolling. <laughs> but there's more negativity on your phone. I'm surprised you would pick up your phone and scroll. <laughs> and, and so, or, you know, maybe we're sitting on the toilet and we're scrolling. Yeah, right. Or we're, we're on the train and we're scrolling. And, it's, and sometimes it's mindless scrolling. But it's not actually that mindless because something's going in. And we are either reinforcing our own biases or not. That's really interesting the way you're you're kind of tying all this together because if you're looking at even the Instagram feed and you're like, okay, like who am I following? And those are inputs. Even if you're mindlessly scrolling, those are inputs that you're going to see on a regular basis versus if you, you know, go to page 155 of your book where you list all, all those resources. Say you started following some of those people that you, you list, the, some of the pages, pick up some of the books. Imagine the education that you can gain in a different perspective. Maybe you recognize some of the blind spots at that point. If you have some of those inputs that are going to shed light on those blind spots. I, I, I love that perspective. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, one of the biggest hurdles, I think, for most companies is diversity. And even though they intend and they, they know that they need to be diverse, they just can't get over that hurdle because they aren't diverse. They hire for diversity because who wants to join a company that doesn't look anything like them or have a diverse atmosphere? How do, how do employers get over that hurdle, even if they haven't well-intentioned um, desires to, to be diverse? Wow. I mean, that's a, that's a, that's a simple question with a, with a multi-layered complex answer. I mean, first of all, I'd say get over yourself and go and do it. But I would encourage to approach the problem from the top and the bottom. So organizations have to do better at putting people in positions of power and where decisions are being made and to think about diversity and representation at the most senior levels. It's as simple as that. I don't buy the excuse that there isn't enough people to be able to do that. I read a stat the other day that there are more in America, there are more CEOs called John than there are female CEOs. Like, come on, people. Like, seriously. We can do better. We can do better. We can do better. And then it, it is about being able to think about where you are advertising for jobs, where you are searching for your candidates. And if you're advertising in publications or online platforms that are traditionally consumed by straight white men, guess what you're going to get in terms of your shortlist of candidates? So it is possible to search differently. 
I also like to challenge the notion of this idea was like, well, you know, the best candidate gets the job. And I'm like, yeah, absolutely the best candidate gets the job. And nobody wants to get a job that they are they are either not qualified for nor deserve. But I, I, I like to say to companies, well, who determines who the best candidate is? And how are they determining who the best candidate is? Or more, more the bias comes into play. Where the bias comes into play. And I'm like, and who designed the recruitment process? Who, who designed the job description? And so the wiring, the kind of infrastructure of candidate searches can be biased towards certain identity markers. And then, then the other place I encourage, you know, leaders to think about is from the bottom up recruitment so that you're not just plugging in diversity at senior levels, but you're also creating opportunity at junior levels. I've always said that the climate of an, of an organization is going to be shaped by the worst behavior you're, you're willing to tolerate in a leader. I also say that the climate of an organization is also shaped by the most junior people in the organization. And so getting better at creating those opportunities at entry level and ensuring that you are bringing diversity in at that level is just as important as it is as bringing diversity into your most senior levels. Once employers and workplaces look more diverse, they are more diverse, inclusion needs to be present as well. What are some practices that employers could, whether it's a policy, philosophy, what recommendations do you have for, for inclusive practices? Wow. Yeah. I mean, I ongoing development and self-awareness raising practices is really important. Well, sometimes I smile and sometimes I get annoyed by people who occupy senior positions and who believe that they are exonerated from any process of self-development. So I think that's that's really, really important. I think a review of policy, of, of HR policy, to make sure that the wiring is inclusive. And what I mean by that is, is everything from making sure that you're talking about primary caregivers instead of mothers and fathers, that you're enabling people to use their chosen name versus their legal name as their email address, that a regular practice of asking for and honoring people's pronouns is a practice in the organization. Recruitment and selection practices, taking a look at your cultural fabric, and cultural fabric is the, the, the phrase I use to describe the kind of collection of mission, vision, values, behaviors, those codes that we have in organizations. Is inclusion hardwired into how you want to do business? I mean, and the book is just jam-packed full Act, of really yeah. just practical, practic, really practical ideas and approaches that people can adopt to create a more inclusive workplace once they have higher diversity. If employers want to pulse check us to how they're doing with belonging, what kind of KPIs could we use? I spent 25 years before I had my own consultancy, 25 years in, in corporate world, in, in various HR, org development, org site roles up to board and C-suite level. And one of the things I've all, I always looked after was employee listening in my roles. And so there is a whole industry out there of what are the metrics that are going to drive people metrics that are going to drive business performance. And for me, it comes down very, very basically to two. 
which is the metrics that you need to look at is your employee satisfaction and your employee attrition. There's a correlation between the two. When one goes up, one goes down. Um, And I think you could strip away all, all of the, I mean, there are question banks and there are, there's artificial intelligence that help you, you know, determine employee sentiment, but you can really gauge it by asking people, do you feel safe here? And do you feel like you belong? Those are two questions that any organization can ask its people. And you can do it anonymously and it will get you a read very, very quickly on the extent to which belonging and inclusion exist in your organization. My guest today has been DDS Dobson-Smith. DDS, your book is called You Can Be Yourself Here, Your Pocket Guide to Creating Inclusive Workplaces by Using the Psychology of Belonging. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show where can people learn more about you or, you know, share anything that you'd want to leave people with? Yeah, thanks, Brandon. Well, the book is available for download in all the usual places. It's um, also available on Audible. The second book comes out in September, which is called Leadership as a Behavior, not a title. And you can find out more about me at www.soultrained.com. Uh, on that website, um, there's a page called Shift Happens where I publish blogs and videos and podcasts. And you can reach me at dds at soultrained.com. DDS, thanks for being part of the show. Appreciate it. My you. pleasure. Thanks for having me. 